Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Heather, thank you so much for joining me on the I Love Data Centers podcast. Thanks, Sean. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. So to frame this and put this in context for those who are listening, um, Heather and I met, I want to say, in 2007, 2008 in Los Angeles while I was working for a company called United Layer, helping to basically find and then fill a data center downtown Los Angeles. And at the time, Heather was down living and working in the LA area. And we were actually at some startup event, a big room with about 100 people, and there was a panel discussion going on. And there was a woman who stood up at the end to ask a question who was like just filled with personality. She had purple hair, and she introduced herself as the Purple Tornado. And the second she stood up and said that, I said, I have to know this woman. I have to get to know who the heck this is, because she's awesome. And sure enough, I did. And we have sparked a friendship that has lasted crazy enough about 10 years now. And with that, um, Heather, I, you know, I want, I wanted to talk to you because you, your background and your career has spanned many different, um, you know, it's forked in many different directions as has mine, but you've landed into a very interested, interesting space that I think is directly relevant to the data center world and data center industry. Uh, but before we get into what you're doing today, I'd love for people to know, you know, where you came from and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. And um, I still remember that, that day, Sean. Um, I think we were in a room of VCs. It's probably the last time I was in a room of VCs. Yeah. I don't normally hang out with VCs that much. Um, but yeah, going to that event, the fact that we got to meet, that was awesome. And it's been, uh, it's been great that crazy it's been a decade but uh but awesome times in in, in that case um so i started out my career in silicon valley um san francisco bay area in uh, the late 90s and i worked for a lot of different startups at the time and uh, primarily in marketing product management so building technology products and communicating what those technology products were to the audiences um and uh fun fact is i was the first Technology Evangelist for DHTML Technology in 1999. That's now Ajax. Now Ajax is super old school, but Ajax 
technology is what enabled all Web 2.0. So all of the, the web technologies that we use within browsers, um, basically having browsers be operating systems, um, you know, I was one of the very first people that communicated and, and told people about that new tech. Um, so I always found myself drawn to uh, working on new innovative technology that's kind of pushing forth what we can do. And uh, in 2004, I took a radical sabbatical and moved from the Bay Area and came to L.A. And um, then I did a bunch of different creative things. Like the, the, the lifestyle from L.A. is very different from the Bay Area that is um, directly influenced by the entertainment industry. So you have a lot of projects. And instead of working for companies, you work for projects. And so um, I did a lot of different projects. I had my own startup for a bit. Um, and uh, in 2006, I started my company, The Purple Tornado. And I was kind of doing a bunch of tech and marketing and blogging and events and kind of stuff like that. That was the age of that kind of thing. Um, and uh, fun fact, I got on the cover of the LA Times for blogging, like over a decade ago. Um, and in the process of going through like that community, I kind of came across someone that I was telling them what I do. And they're like, you're a futurist. And I was like, what's that? And they told me. And I was like, that's a crazy. Uh, fast forward a couple years later, I did end up getting a master's of science in foresight. And uh, I am a professionally trained futurist. I have a master of science. And uh, what I do now is I oh, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on, hold on, because I, I know I know listeners are gonna um, have a couple questions around that, as I have a couple questions around that. Um, okay. So how how does one actually go about getting a master's in in future? You know, as a foresight? futurist. Yeah. And, and, and okay. Foresight. Okay. So there's like basically two routes that that people go to call themselves futurists. One is and this is the other way. Um, you just change your title. And um, a lot of strategists and uh, people who've been inside corporations for a long time will do that. And they kind of are thinking about innovation and they might read some books on it or take like a one-week seminar to learn about what foresight is, um, how, you, uh, do, how you research trends, how you understand how trends impact uh, what your business is and then apply it for that. Um, or there's actually several company, uh, several universities. I think there's more now than when I looked at it. When I looked at it, there were only three in North America where you could get a master's, where you could go get a master's program. And um, so I went to the University of Houston, um, which is the oldest uh, foresight program in North America, in, in the Americas. And it was started in the 60s across from NASA. Houston NASA, um, and uh, it's a uh, it's a program where you study um, research methods, um, foresight methods, um, systems thinking, um, uh, you know, uh, framework protocols. Um, the what what does a futurist do, right? So a lot of people are like, yeah, you're a futurist. What do you do? Um, the easiest way I can describe it is well, I study the future and the medium of the future is very different from the medium of the present or the past. Uh, a lot of people think the future is a lot like the present and the past. There's one past, there's, uh, there's one present. So we extrapolate out, we think there's one future. And that is why we like 
prediction. But the future is a totally different piece. Um, the future is all timeline, all possibility. But like, it's it's like it's it's totally it's totally different. It's not like the past, the present at all, because it's what could happen. It's probability. And so, as a futurist, what you do is you look at what the trends are happening with, uh, and there are many different ways to research trends and to analyze where trends go, the influence the trends are going to have on each other, the influence the trends are going to have on the world. So there's feedback loops in the trends in the present, and then you it can extrapolate those feedback loops out, and then you look at possible futures. And so um, these are possibilities about what can happen. I probably know 20 different methods to um, explore possible futures, like what these, these futures are. And then once you know what those futures are, you could be like, okay, I like that one. That's the one I want to work to make happen. And, you know, then you can do a strategic plan and put resources to make that happen. Or you could say, oh, it looks like that's going to happen. Mobile phone adoption is going crazy. So, we want to do something with mobile phones in that. Um, and so um, there's, there's ways where you can extrapolate a trend into the future and um, then, you know, identify which ones you like and then um, kind of figure out how to get there. And then um, there's another way. Uh, I just used this method. Uh, I just wrote a paper with a colleague on uh, future, future scenarios for cybersecurity. And so we had like 12 different scenarios that way. But then as I was doing analysis of the research, um, I identified all of these existing paradigms. And the paper we were writing for was for an, uh, an academic workshop that was looking at new security paradigms. So I was like, okay, so here's like 10 existing paradigms of our security life now. Like uh, it's an adversarial pat-down uh, environment. Um, so let's let's flip those paradigms. Let's come up with new paradigms by reversing what the current ones are. And so, you know, that was like, you know, rather so the current paradigm is cat mouse adversarial interactions for cybersecurity. So what if there's no more adversary in cybersecurity? What does that world look like? And then what we did is we had like about fifteen or twenty different variables for each of the worlds that we came up with. And so then we we're like, okay, so you know, what would it take to make a non-adversarial cybersecurity world? And then we put all those variables and added other research that we had to fit to kind of come up with that world too. So and um, as you're as you're doing all this, I'm sure there's like different probabilities of certain paradigms occurring at some point. Yes, you can do that. I don't do that because I think it's pointless. Um, the probability, just because you rank a probability of a possible future um, happening doesn't actually have any impact in that future happening or not. Like mm -hmm. that just makes us feel more comfortable, which is also why we like um, predictions, right? Nobody can make a prediction. Well, I mean, people do predictions, people make predictions, but I like, to me, if someone makes a prediction, they're obviously clueless about the medium of the future, right? Like anyone who makes a prediction has no business talking about the future because they have it wrong. You can, you make a prediction about something by saying that, that means that you, you control all of the variables that it requires for that future to come true. And nobody controls all the variables for to make anything happen, right, in the future. We are all co-creating the future in the present. Um, 
but there, but so hold on. The- let, let me challenge <laughs> you on that. So th- there are some scenarios, right? So if you um, are walking out into uh, traffic during rush hour and the probability that you're going to get jacked by a car is relatively high versus if you're walking out into traffic uh, at some point in the future where it's maybe 3 a.m. and there's no traffic on the freeway. I mean, does that, that's a very yes, simple. Okay. That is simple. And, and you could say, yes, it's, it's more likely or less like you're more likely to get hit by a car in this situation in the, in the high traffic time versus the low traffic time. But wild cards are low probability, high impact events. And um, so the probability of these things are very low, but when they do happen, it's very high. For example, a drunk driver driving by at three in the morning just happens to happen that one time that you're like, this is the Uber car, the Uber accident that happened in um, Arizona, right? So yes, the probability is low, but, and, and that information is useful, but don't be lulled into thinking that low probability possibilities will never happen because these low probability, high impact events happen a lot. And actually they happen. I mean, these are the things that are what like hackers are looking for, right? They're looking for these vulnerabilities you know, they're looking for that one little needle in the haystack way to get in, hack your system, do things, whatever. So I actually think, I mean, you can rank them based on probabilities to do that. That means you have to rank the variables and, or weigh the variables, and then you can rank those, you know, rank the um, probabilities of those. But I, and that makes us feel better as humans, right? Because we want certainty. But it doesn't have any impact on reality. One, it, it's, it's like one scenario could have a low probability scenario has just as much a percentage happening as a high probability scenario, much like flipping a quarter heads or tails. Every time you start a new coin toss, start over again. Yeah. Gotcha. Anyway. All right. So th- this is important and good because I'm going to be picking your brain, leveraging your <laughs> knowledge and your, your experience as to how it relates to, to what we do today. Um, so you get a master's in um, foresight and uh-huh. you're living in Houston. Were you in Houston, living in Houston? Or no, did no, you do- I did it. I did it virtually. So, um, I did go to Houston a few times and most of the coursework was online, um, you know, video. uh, I mean, I worked with the team. We live in the modern age. We have to be physically present with everyone, not all the time. So, so I was, um, I was living and working in LA and I would travel to Houston and uh, do my classes for Houston. And I actually took, I took about a year off because I, I, during that year I was working for Swift and I just, I couldn't, work full-time and do school so um so i took a year off and then i came back and i i finished it then when did we reconnect a couple years back when you were working on the the future of money yeah the future of money stuff so actually the future of money project like my research in that i kicked that off with my uh with my master's program it really is an arc to show my master's program and it really was a way for me to apply what I was learning to a new topic. Um, uh, when I went to get my master's, I wasn't like straight out of school. I had worked for over 10 years. So I just kind of looked at it as a consulting project and um, did that research. 
And a couple of years later, um, during during the time of doing that work, I ended up um, being hired by Swift. The um, uh, when you spend money internationally, you use the Swift code um, because they liked my research. I made a couple of video scenarios, and then after that ended, um, I wanted to do a TV series around the future of money. And so I think that's when we reconnected. I was looking. I had this Kickstarter, and uh, I wanted to eat my own dog food with, um, you know, living the future of money, and crowdfunding was a was one of the trends I was watching at that time, and uh, I think that that's how we reconnected. Yeah, yep. Started traveling the world, interviewing people, and doing, I think. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know that I was, I did get invited to some cool places, um, yeah. but. Um, you were in My, India um, at one point. You were in. England no, no, I actually, I, I didn't actually end up going to India. I was yeah. going to go. Yeah, some of the, some that project fell apart, unfortunately, um, because the person I had partnered with, um, I've actually never really spoken about this. Um, so the person I partnered with that that had the video uh, and the Hollywood contact, um, things got weird once the Kickstarter got funded and there was this expectation that I was going to just hand over the money to her and her company. And I didn't feel comfortable with that um, because people had backed the Kickstarter, um, you know, based on my reputation. And, uh, and so she threw a hissy fit and left. And I, I, um, I was I was very surprised by this because it was someone I knew and I trusted, but in some ways I couldn't help to think that possibly I dodged the bullet because the whole time we had discussed the joint venture where we would both have control and ownership over the funds, um, and uh, and here it was. It seemed like she was changing the game at the you know after the fact. And she didn't even help or support the Kickstarter at all. She didn't even like throw any money into the Kickstarter. And, um, and so I really, you know, that really, that really hurt a lot emotionally. Um, but then for another year or so, I tried to make those contacts and do all that stuff on my own, but it was really outside of my skill set. And I think I was just so broken from a feeling of betrayal. Um, uh, I would have never have done that Kickstarter had I, uh, or I wouldn't have tried to do the project that way had I n- n- not known I wasn't going to be able to count on, um, you know, my partner, these resources. And so um, it, it really actually, I really, I really withdrew and I didn't want to work with anyone for like maybe three years after that. Well, it's yeah. good good lesson learned for i think all of us is to you know before you go into partnership with anyone right it's a marriage more than anything else and you got to know what you're getting yourself into and who you're getting getting into bed with right it is it is i have a lot of um uh a lot of heartbreak over that project like i'm not done with it it's it's sleeping now because i don't i let's let's talk to people about exactly what it was so so as I, as I recall, right. And what got me fired up about it, cause I'm, I'm all about yeah. education and I think the world yeah. would be a better place is if the decision makers and both BC and all 
state governments and local governments and just human beings in general had a better understanding of how money worked and how money flowed and uh, not just how to use money, but um, how money is using us. Um, and so the education piece was around like, what are the different controlling factors around capital and money and how is money being used? How is money going to be used in the future? How is that going to affect our day-to-day -day life? Um, did I, did I, you know, high level? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was absolutely it. I mean, it was looking at how technology is changing the way we're going to pay and transact with things, which includes new economic systems, which was like the sharing economy, the sharing economy and crowdfunding. And the whole idea of like, you know, back then I was thinking about ICOs, which are crazy initial coin offerings for alternate currencies. I really envisioned this world of individual currencies that we could have, um, you know, um, sharing things, um, uh, uh, you know, either sharing things in kind or, you know, like house swapping or books or just as a way to shift the consumer economy so that you don't have to, you know, always have, to, everyone doesn't have to buy their own drill or everyone doesn't have to own a dome in the Mojave Desert. All you have to do is know me or have an Airbnb account and you can come crash at my dome. Um, so it was a whole access of that and um, a way of increasing our our lifestyles and, and our satisfaction with life without having to actually like be on the financial treadmill to have to acquire everything all our own. Um, so, so yeah, actually an interesting thing from that, you talked about education, you might be interested in this. I actually did an economics course. I taught an economics course for high school students um, a few years ago that blended a lot of what traditional economics was with some of <clears throat> what I guess I'd call new economics and um, which includes, you know, being more sustainable, thinking about the commons, sharing things, you know, a, a sustainable capitalism, enough Profit's not bad in and of itself, but too much you start to extract, exploit the environment, and then you know, initially, in the end, the system will collapse. And that's not good for those of us living in that system. So, where did you, um, where did you do that? Um, it is actually through a friend of mine has education uh, course in. Um, I shot it in. Seattle, and it was so cool. He's got it in like 360, so it's like 360. And if you want, I can find the link and uh, and send it to you if you want to include it in the in the, sure. the liner notes. Definitely include that in the show notes. So it was a, a virtual virtual classroom setting. Yeah, it was a virtual classroom, and um, I think I did like 50 lessons, and it was targeted towards like you know mid mid high school range um and uh there were activities and it was it was looking at economics you know thinking about economics as i was doing the research for that i was reading all these old school you know these traditional economic courses and i was i just i was like this is like the economics of the 20th century you know 21st century economics is really different like it's the difference between like you know industrial versus information age and we are just in the baby steps the beginning we're not even teenager years of information age because we still live by the economic and and the um, the market system which really thrives in the industrial world all right so, so 
So you just hit a topic that I wanted to bring up with you. So okay. one of the questions that I get frequently from the investor community, um, private equity community and whatnot, that's putting capital into the world of data centers, managed hosting companies, hosting companies, data center companies, the, the real estate investment trusts that own these, these buildings, uh, is where are we on the timeline as it relates to data? right? And information and data storage and compute and, and whatnot. There are some who will argue that we've plateaued uh, and that there, there's not going to be an ongoing need for uh, data storage and whatnot because there's a increasing, uh, technology is increasing at such a rate that allows for data storage to occur on a smaller and smaller device and leveraging less and less power to, to keep it running. Um, I even hear, you know, some people saying, oh, well, you know, in 10 years, all data is going to be stored at the molecular level, you know, DNA level, and it's going to even further change the game. Have mm-hmm. you put any thoughts towards that? My, you know, I have my own opinions, which I'll get into later, but I'm curious if you've dug down any of those, those rabbit holes. Well, I mean, one thing, timelines are really hard to, you know, timelines, you can only really do them in retrospect. Um, I feel like based on my research it feels like maybe a like a little bit of growing pain on on the uh, maybe there's a plateau but then there's another hockey stock a hockey puck coming afterwards after a certain period of time because we have all of these devices uh, you know that are going to be coming online and Anytime, I love this quote by Bruce Schneier. I was actually just thinking about it earlier today because I love Bruce Schneier. He's the security guy. He's amazing. Uh, I saw him at South by Southwest a few years ago, and he said, every time technology interacts with another piece of technology or with a human, anytime technology interacts with anything, data is created. Now, in the past and the history, we did not have the, it was too expensive to save all of that data. Now, it's so cheap to save that data that we have. And centralized data repositories are delicious, yummy targets for hackers. That problem will get solved. Um, uh, is it, where is the data going to go? Is it going to be in a decentralized way? Like, am I going to have my own personal data store? Then I'm going to have to need my own security? I just, I don't see how... We're going to be creating less data, and our technology is going to be creating less data. We are, you know, developing machine learning and artificial intelligence to better understand the data, to use it. Now, it's just to sell more crap to us. But actually, I think it's going to be, we're, we're going to have to transcend advertising as the primary business model for all of this, because that is, that is not sustainable. But, you know, that peak. And, and they're eking or squeezing the bits out of it. But the millennials and, you know, Gen Xers, millennials, and all the other generations, we we advertising, we all use ad blockers, right? It's not going to work. So, so I do not, yeah, yeah you have so, questions. So it's, I, think, I think people can wrap their head around the concept that there definitely is more and more data being created. Um, people taking video every time they can all the different applications, Snapchat, you know, Instagram, 
Facebook, whatever the heck. Um, they're all creating you know new devices that have new uses for data. Uh, and the interesting thing that we have found is that as the ability for networks to transmit volumes of data grows cheaper, the advent of new applications arises for making use of that, right? So for example, we could be having this conversation real time, virtually with you seemingly look, sitting right across the room from me. The technology exists. You know, Cisco has the, uh, God, I'm blanking on the name, but the, the hologram technology such mm-hmm. that we could be doing that. We mm-hmm. have chosen not to pay the thousands of dollars a month to have that large of a pipe between the two of us and pay the mm-hmm. quarter million dollars or whatever for the device on each end to transmit that hologram, but that's possible. So mm-hmm. as the uh, technology becomes a little bit more affordable, um, that is going to be possible, which is going to create even more of a use case and more demand for uh, processing and for more data being created and even more metadata that can be created around that type of a use case. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. So where we have people saying, well, you know, it's plateauing. We definitely don't see it plateauing. We simply see new technologies emerging that are taking, making use of the, um, the inexpensive nature of data storage, of processing, of Mm -hmm. network capacity, um, you know, 10 gig, hundred gig everywhere all the time. Like what, Mm -hmm. what kind of a world do we live in? What, what's the foresight around a world that, has 100 gig everywhere all the time right gosh i don't know that'd be a fun that'd be fun to think about though i mean i think about i think about energy usage right so for led for led light um the incandescence is so much energy and then we're you know swapping them out pretty much can't buy those anymore you you get leds so that reduces that reduces the energy use but um but now you can do so much more different things, right? Not only reduces the energy, it increases the, the functionality and the features and what you can do and how many of those lights you can put everywhere, you know, or, or you know, you, you didn't have these possibilities. It opens up these new possibilities. And then we, as humans, do what we do best, which is, like, play with it and explore and try new things and break it and find the edges of that new technology. And then new technology comes in pushes those edges out so you know uh i haven't thought about that but that i have thought about worlds where you know we have tons of energy available to us um, worlds where we have tons of bandwidth wow that i can see some pretty cool stuff so that's there's a handful of um projects like the whole uh Google Fiber uh, project right. where they're dropping into different cities and putting 100, 100 gig everywhere. They're investing in uh, different applications that are being built around leveraging that technology. And they're doing it because yeah. they envision that future, right? They know that in due time, we will have that type of capacity available, not just in New York and Manhattan and Chicago uh, mm-hmm. and San Francisco, but we're going to have it in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I think 
In fact, they already have 100 gig everywhere because that was one of the Google Fiber cities that was dropped into. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, I moved from LA. I, I lived in my house out by 29 Palms by Joshua Tree National Park, and it's very dramatically different environment. Um, but I love it out here because it, it, it has a very good positive impact on my body and physically, like a lot of creativity. That's the stress of the city. Just, you know, you deal with the stress of the city and you're constantly dealing with that. But to be able to like wire a city like here, like there's so much possibilities. And I mean, by possibilities, I mean like the people that are here, like the brains and the thinking about things and, and, um, uh, you know, ex- being exposed to the riches the internet has to offer that is beyond, you know, the, 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 the customized channels or the media channels that, that a lot of the internet is today. Um, I think, you know, har- hearkening back to what the early days of the web were, like with net and CBSs and a little bit, you know, chaotic. Um, but, you know, increasing it, that's, that's the dream of the internet. That's the, the original dream. And, and it requires connectivity. And we're just adding more and more layers of, of um, clarity on top of that with, like, you know, first it was text, then it was audio, then it's, you know, video, then it's, like, 3D, these holograms, and it's just going to continue to allow us to um, create these spaces with each other that are beyond the physical space. Right. And then the, all the infrastructure to support it just becomes plumbing at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I just, I just can't imagine needing less of it. Right. I, I can't either. But that's where like people are saying where you can put, um, you know, tera, tera, terabytes of data into a, a DNA strand or even petabytes yeah. to a DNA strand mm-hmm. and, you know, that teeny tiny DNA strand is going to store all that data. Um, and so oh, yeah, that's, that's... going to, you take an entire data center and you can put it down into one single DNA strand. It's like, okay, well then a, how is that even possible? I know people are working on it. Um, but then how, how do you process any of that data? And we're going to have to think of new ways to even process that data. But there's, there's, yeah. you know, s- scenarios like that where um, people are, you know, it, people i have heard people say that you know data centers are going to be null and and void in the near future and i you know i think those people are reading too many science fiction books i read a lot of science fiction i think they're reading way too much science fiction i don't see that as a future that's possible well okay so to address that because you brought up earlier and i i kind of wanted to say something about that you know um all new technology starts out as like garage or a lab or something like that those lab conditions in which you're you're doing research right again this is like this is like i do research on the future so my ideal research conditions that you know result in these possible futures but then the future actually turns out to be the future um and um you know these conditions that people are trying new technology and it's necessary to go through and do that but when you read you know results that are of research done in in a lab, I mean, one, that's awesome because it proves something, right? It proves that it is possible. 
with the new position. There's still a super long road to go before it becomes widely adopted and and available everywhere. And just because you can do it doesn't mean that there are not other challenges that are not technical, they're social or political or cultural that cause challenges to having that technology be adopted and used in that particular way. Um, stem cell stuff, right? So they have all the technology figured out, but like some people are morally against it. So, you know, what if someone was morally against putting terabytes of data in terabytes of data in your DNA? I mean, we we don't know, but the path of the research gives us the opportunity to see what's possible, to think about it, process it, and you know give feedback into the development of the technology in that way. Right. And it, it, an example that I, you know, I think about, and I've spoken with a few people about that I think provides somewhat of an, an a analogy is, um, so we've landed on the moon and yet we do not have, you know, full built out hotels where anyone can just go up and spend some time on the moon hanging out. Right. Mm-hmm. Why is mm-hmm. that? Right. We have the capability of doing that. Yes, mm-hmm. is it commercially mm-hmm. viable? Not really. Um, mm-hmm. w- but there's also like dozens, if not hundreds, of other variables that I haven't even mentioned uh, that mm-hmm. preclude and prevent us from making that just a, a norm right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with like going to Mars. Like, great. So we're going to have, uh, I think, in a couple years, the first uh, international station is going to be built. That's going to be a stopping off point between us going to Mars. So that's going to be years into the future. Us even landing on Mars is going to be even more years into the future. Us colonizing Mm -hmm. something like Mars is going to be what? Probably hundreds of years into the future. Um, Well, okay. Actually, I love this. And if you want to talk about climate change, like we're going to want to change the climate on Mars, right? So my attitude is, and again, this is one of the things I love living out in the middle of the desert is like, um, we want to actually be serious and legitimate about going to Mars and having this civilization on Mars. We can kill two birds with one stone by trying to change the climate on our own planet the way we want to change it versus in response to our, our actions negatively. So, um, you know, there are, yeah, you're, yeah, all of these things. It takes time for us to figure out, you know, do the research, to, to um, understand what it means, to actually happen and uh, and there are people and and it costs it takes money too and so the people that have the money to to do that kind of stuff are um very successful capitalists you know jeff bezos elon musk um although also elon musk takes advantage of the government with government also governments have a lot of money too and so they fund a lot of r&d projects and so uh you know government funding actually started several of elon musk's companies, you know, because the subsidies for um for electric the electric car stuff. Yeah. Um uh so you know and actually I was recently just doing some research on this. There's actually um what is it? It's like Copenhagen. There's like an amateur space program. I think it's based out of Copenhagen. It's like the only non government space program that's uh non government non commercial, right? Because mm-hmm. you have Bezos is who origin, which is basically like his version of SpaceX. 
on both of those organizations, Origin and SpaceX, do government contracts. And so they, it's, it's like the government, what's happening with NASA is that got outsourced to these private companies. And here you have two men that dream of going to space for their own personal reasons, backing their company. I mean, Amazon profits, Amazon. I just was reading about Blue Origin, which is Jesus' um, uh, space company. Um, you know, it's totally funded by him from Amazon profits. And he dreams of having a suborbit, um, you know, uh, experience. And that actually was part of the inspiration for one of my, in my very first video I did called Fly Me to the Moon. Um, it was about going on a suborbit. There was a suborbit space captain and there was a suborbit, you know, set in the future. So, I mean, all that also ties into some of the, the different economics and models and things too. So. I don't know where we want to go from this tangent. Well, it's, it's it's a roundabout way of me just wanting to get people to think a little bit more critically about the the reality that data centers are probably not going to go anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> Ooh, but we probably like, uh, you know what my question is, like, when is the first data center in space going to happen? Yeah. Or is there already a data center in space? Does the, um, I'm totally blanking, the, uh, uh, I can't remember. International Space Station? Do they have a data center? They've I'm got sure they to have must. a data center. They have to. Yeah, there's got. I mean, and what is a data center, right? If it's simply a room that has a few servers, um, you know, which is you know the technical definition of a data of a data center, um, right. which is why we say that there are literally millions of data centers in the U.S. alone, but like ninety-two right. percent of which are basically just closets in people's offices that have a couple servers running their business, then yeah, for sure. There's already a data center. Do we already have a data center on Mars? Like the the data servers on the Mars rovers? That's a do great question. Count? I, I mean, I mean, I, I do own lunarcolo.com. Just <laughs> <laughs> me, I mean, me I'm being, sure. I mean, I'm going to label myself a futurist here just by changing my title. <laughs> you could. <laughs> I've been, I have uh, underwater. Like, <laughs> I've underwater colo. <laughs> I've got lunar colo. Maybe you, you I love it. I love it. your thinking. Right? No, that's totally it. Now, is it our 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 lunar is is are your lunar um, uh, data centers are they more secure? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it's good dr, right? So if the world blows up, at least you know your data's backed up on a different different planet. Though if the <laughs> Exactly. Data centers of the planetary system. Right. Intergalacticcolo.com. <laughs> you might need to buy that one. I think I'm pretty sure I already own it. I own it. <laughs> um, uh, stupid domain names. Um, <laughs> so, so let's let's shift gears here because there's another key component that I want to I want to discuss with you and you have a some not some you have a, a lot of background you've done a ton of research around which is cyber and security and cybersecurity um, and you've authored or co-authored a handful of books now one of which I have in front of me which is the cyber attack survival manual which I've read and I'm going to put in show notes is a must read I think by everybody um, it's a great resource, great tool that covers kind of soup to nuts, uh, whether you're a noob or you're, you're a pro. 
um, every aspect of cybersecurity and digital security from your home to your kids to the office and whatnot. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what you've learned and how you've gone about learning uh, about all things in the cyberspace? Yeah. Um, so I actually was originally brought on to write the future of money segment uh, chapter um, of this book, and then that kind of just snowballed. So a lot of the second half of the, the book was the things that I wrote. Um, uh, they were areas I already had interest in, like Internet of Things, um, you know, dating online, um, of, uh, you know, dealing with hackers, um, trolling, and and uh, online harassment. Um, you know, uh, for this particular book, we really wanted to focus on um, explaining the issues um, in a fun, easy to read way. Like, I mean, I, it's like a great bathroom book. Um, uh, there's lots of pictures. You can open up to anywhere in the book and there's like sidebars and stuff. You can learn really fast, um, but also have some fun stories and lots of cool graphics too. So um, uh, what did I do? I, you know, for every page that I wrote that's, that's in the book, I did hours and hours of research, right? So. Um, you can you can do all this research yourself. Um, it's all the information's out there, and I talked. Uh, you know, I read all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, I spent a ridiculous amount of time um, in Reddit uh, Reddit comment threads. I know you're not supposed to read the comments, but I love reading the comments um, and uh, triangulating. You know, information. So you're getting information from different sides. Uh, I also interviewed people um, for uh, for the Darknet chapter and some of the money laundering with Bitcoin stuff. Uh, I know nefarious people, <laughs> and they were kind enough to talk to me. And then, actually, I, I talked to, there was one guy that I talked to on, found on Reddit, and I had a conversation back and forth on, on the messaging. Um, you know, people were willing to share their information. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was great. I just keep reading, you know, uh, fun stories, learning what the issues are, and then giving realistic um, uh, advice on, on what you can do to secure yourself, depending on how secure, secure you want to be. If you're like, oh, my God, I never want anyone to touch any of my data or anything. Well, then you shouldn't even bother being online. Um, um then you have like less paranoid and then you have just like normal people. So um, I've had people, um, you know, we want it to be fun for security folks. I mean, it's not traditionally targeted towards security professionals because you probably already know everything. You might learn some fun stories. Like there's actually like, like one of my, one of, uh, there's some fun stories. Um, uh, we did these true false sidebars, right? So can you hire someone? Uh, you, can you hire assassin on the on the internet? Um, and one of them, page eighty three, a smart appliance was witness to a murder. Right? Is that true or false? Kind of true. And then we tell the story. Um, and so it's kind of fun little thing. Fun little stories. Getting yeah, chip and pin card be hacked. You know. And it's it is a great read. There's so many different. T ways that you tell stories and different topics that you dig into. Um, 
one of the questions I had for you that popped up that's popped up for me routinely is um, there's a lot of s- security companies that are out there that work with the enterprise, but are there any security companies that work with individuals? So if mm. you are a you know an EVP that works for a, a company, are there firms that work with those individuals to ensure that their home and their their devices are lock that will teach best, best practices, not just to them, but to their family. Um, and, you know, set up wow. you know, this, this safe browsing for their, you know, the kids in the family and whatnot, because I'm, you know, I'm obviously dealing with that as is every single parent on the planet that's connected to the internet. And I just, wow. you know, if anyone's listening out there and they've already started a company like that, let me know. I'd love to talk to you and potentially work with you and promote you. Um, but if someone, you know, if that hasn't happened yet, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah, you know, that is fascinating. Um, I have not come across that, and I think that is primarily an economic issue. Um, when, I, you know, I just completed um, some research on the future of security. I'm not going to say I'm done with it because I'm obsessed with cybersecurity right now. I just kind of did my first pass. Um, I am not a hacker a cybersecurity professional. I know a lot about the space and I've researched it and I, I respect what people do and I can speak well to what they do, but I you know, also just want to be clear that there are uh, security professionals are some of the most humble, amazing, genius men and women I've ever spoken to. They don't search out the spotlight with some people who search out this spotlight, there's a lot of snake oil too, you know. But the 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 real men and women like trying to protect things, they don't get out there a lot. So I'm not trying. I just wanna I wanna put the spotlight on them and what they're doing and the work that they're doing through my research and stuff like this, and try to make their jobs easier. They're like true heroes. Like they they really are true heroes securing us. Um, the I have not heard of any companies working for individuals. And I, uh, my guess is that, um, you know, you st- people start companies because, and they target enterprises because enterprises have money and um, enterprises are delicious, uh, tar- you know, targets and that uh, they have great, they have broad tax base and, um, you know, for their business, they have to spend money on security. Now, how much money they spend on it is, you know, security professionals think they should spend more. Um, enterprises try to spend as little as possible so they can have their profits and revenues higher. Um, that, from a, from a market perspective, it's just, you know, while it really would help people and we need it, as we have more of these IoT devices come on, fine, we're buying them, we're putting them in our houses. Um, we are, you know, we have increasing technology in our vehicles, not even talking about like self-driving cars, just all of the other components. Um, it's just, um, I haven't heard about that. And I yeah. think that, you know, this book does address, like even for this book, I have people who are security professionals and they know about this. They buy this for their kids. You know, they're like thirteen kids that were not are not like you know totally geeky like you and I um, for their for their parents. I mean, who does that security stuff? Probably like you and me. 
for our friends and family. You know, yeah, you do it for yourself. I would say, and that's kind of what popped this into my head, is the format and the design of the book is such that it is very easily read by those who are non like major geeks. So it's not your typical manual, right? It's not just pages and pages yeah. of text. Uh, it's very yeah. approachable. Well, I will, I will say, thank you. I will say that is one of the big talents and skills that I bring to this because I understand what's going on, but then I can also translate it to, you know, outside the industry. And that's what I do with the future stuff too, right? Like I have my, you know, wizard behind the curtain with doing my knobs and stuff. And then I can go bloop, show you what that is. I'm happy to be transparent about how I do it because it's not magic. It is both an art and a science. Um, but at the same time, you know, yes, could you do it? Well, I mean, anyone could do it as long as they had the right training and understanding and time and read the same stuff. But do you want to do it? Wouldn't you just rather have the answers? You know, I can tell you the answers. Um, and that's what this book, this book has the answers, right? So I've done all the research. Um, I knew this was going to be in the security space. I have a really high you know, level of integrity for myself. I I wanted this to be usable. I wanted I ne- I wanted it and needed it to stand up to hardcore security professional. And actually, Nick Selby, the co-op, my my other author, the other author, um, he's like a cyber crime cop. Like he's he he helps on investigations for all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, and he wrote. Um, he wrote a bunch of books, but the 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 Wikipedia, WikiLeaks and whistleblowers and national security and that kind of stuff. He wrote all about that, and he has some really interesting opinions about you know Snowden and, and a lot of those things that you know more liberal person like me is like, why do you think that? You know, he's been privy to other data and information that's not publicly released, so it's interesting to take it's interesting to take those different perspectives in mind you know so yeah definitely so i work i think i mentioned this before on the podcast but i work with uh an organization called infraguard which is a mm. public private partnership between the fbi and the, the private sector and um through that have been exposed to people who work with homeland security and nsa and mm. and other organizations um and had some very interesting conversations with them some of them are very eye-opening and uplifting and some of them are frightening as heck and keep me awake at night mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i agree yeah the gist of it and where i was going with that is there are a lot of individuals who are in it for the right reasons uh that are mm-hmm. very very wicked smart that allow us to basically perpetuate and live in the the brave new digital world that we live in today um and have the life that we the the way of life that we have today uh, both on the private sector and the public public sector. So there's there's a lot of people that are working diligently, you know, hours and hours a day, not even getting paid, or you know, for those who work for the federal government, getting paid very very little, um, and yet risking their lives and um, their families' lives just doing what they do on an ongoing basis just to protect. And the other key piece here is I don't think most Americans know just how much corporate espionage is occurring in the United States mm-hmm. due to cybersecurity. Um, there's, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of theft 
um, that occurs in the United States from both state and non-state actors who are working mm-hmm. to basically disrupt our economy and disrupt our way of life. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it takes a monumental effort. Um, it takes even a bigger monumental effort than we even have the capacity to deliver right now to protect what, what uh, our way of life as Americans. Totally agree. I did some work for the U.S. Army in the last year, um, looking at the future of military learning, and um, to to do that project, um, we did a I did a, a future scenario. I did research future scenarios, and then we produced this video. And the video is actually of a, a cybersecurity war game. And so, um, you know, the more I learned about that, and I talked to you know men and women in the service. And I just ended up having so much respect and, um, you know, the values, what people are doing, they, they don't do it for the money. I'm just like the civilian corporate world could learn so much from the government and, and government service um, that, uh, you know, you know, and the other thing that like doing that work for the army takes off my fascination with the future of war where the um the war theater um is no longer based in the physical world it's the digital world and cybersecurity um and even using um in this this um paper that i just finished um one of the paradigms we were looking at um i'll just i'll just share it a little bit was this whole like this is one of my favorite ones um Using like 2D pineapple or like using pineapples, like you're driving around with a pineapple trying to, you know, do uh, get information about the networks around and seeing what you can penetrate, stuff like that. Um, Hold on. on. I'm I'm not sure I understand what you mean by pineapple, and I'm sure some of our listeners don't. (laughs) Okay. So, um, okay. So I don't mean the fruit. I mean it's the technology device that hackers use. you and again, I could not explain the details of how it works. Um, but it 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 you you use this device to basically like sniff or see the different networks that are out there. Um, uh, when Google for a while, when Google was doing the Google um, Street View, they they would also find out what networks were public and open on those even if you had to have a password to get into it they'd be like okay these networks are at these places and that was really like when that came out that was a really big um uh you know we're like why are they collecting this um you know what my what my wi-fi network is so anyway a pineapple is this device that it's a like i couldn't tell you what device is beyond my hacker my hacker level here um it goes in it like if if you are sending data, some of them they can like um, you know find out what the they can intercept data packets. They can find out you know what the um, you know if there's a, a hot spot or something that's not supposed to be in the space. Um, so anyway, one of the ways that we we were limited to doing that kind of stuff is if you could get into a location or if you were driving by in a car or something like that. Now you could also do this if. Um, I saw some research where someone was um, uh, picking up internet-connected. How do I say this? <laughs> internet-connected intimate devices, 
Disney Studios, there's intimate devices you can buy that connect to the internet. Well, these are like IoT devices, and they don't have secure. They don't have. They don't use secure connections, and so you could take a pineapple. It's this technology. It's called a pineapple. I don't know what it's really called. Um, and then you could discover like, oh, this device is connected here, and then this is the way you can, like learn information about the digital landscape. So anyway, if you mash that up with a drone, put a pineapple on a drone, then it gives you a lot more freedom to not be limited to like where you can access with your physical body or you know with a, like a device. You could actually like fly it around or in a city landscape or in a another landscape. I know out here in Joshua Tree National Park and some of the other BLM lands out here, I've heard rumors of drones and other other types of um, devices that are tracking people and things that go through the park that maybe shouldn't be going through, that are maybe doing illicit uh, trafficking. So, wow, boy, we just went like way down. We went way down. Yeah, that's, um, I'm sure Burning Man, for example, not many people realize just how, um, how many, uh, narcs are, are, uh, who attend Burning Man and the type of technology that's being used at Burning Man to, um, you know, know who's doing what, where, because people have, they've learned pretty quickly that that's, there's a lot of activity that goes on there and meetings that occur there that, uh, people think are being done under, you know, uh, with some awesome like secret in the middle of nowhere place. Like imagine this would be like a great way to distribute malware. You set up a Wi-Fi hotspot with really crappy low Wi-Fi, but you get people to connect to it, and somehow you're able to install malware on anyone who connects to this Wi-Fi hotspot. Now, okay, that that's not going to really get you very much while you're at Burning Man, but you're not really like. Doing, you're not really, you don't really care because all those people are, they don't take, they take their same device. It's not like a sterilized device or something at Burning Man and then come back. But I, I haven't heard of anyone doing that. But I don't know, maybe someone it, will have an idea to do it. But so if, if you go to go to any airport and just look at how many same things are mm-hmm. available, right, or even hotels, it's frightening. Um, and that goes back to my question about who can I work with that can help me basically lock all my shit down, uh, both right. at home for my family, for my kids, uh, and at work. And you know, can right. I think that's a service that should be like an insurance policy almost that could tack on to your homeowner's insurance or your life insurance or you know, LifeLock. I'm surprised doesn't offer something similar to that, um, where people can actually. Well, I mean, reduce your your homeowner's insurance rates by um you know getting a certification that you've gone through this process or this program mm-hmm. oh like a good driver good uh good internet looks right. good security provider I, I will say like one of the solutions that happens with that is um uh like a closed standard stack like apple or like you know if you use an iphone you use the whole apple stack you know that's got pretty good security um you use like the the google you know if you're on google android the google you know hardware software everything it's all owned managed by a single company that requires you to put all your eggs in that basket you know 
um, a lot of people choose to do that. Um, uh, other people choose, you know, it's like, how do you want to spend your time and energy and your resources? Do you want, you know, you know your security? Do you want to do all your security yourself? Maybe you just want something that's, like, good enough for what you, you need to do. And I mean, and then it comes down to it, like, we don't need bank-grade security for everything. Like, I don't need bank-grade security for my Netflix account. Like, do I really care if someone hacks into my Netflix account? Like, I mean, I mean, I, yes, I do care. Right. Um, I'm sure that there's a way they could use my viewing data to manipulate me. <laughs> um, but um, it's not at the point that that kind of data, you know, getting into a system like that is um, is on the level as getting into a financial right it could be at some point um but at this point it's pretty clear that we need to secure our financial institutions and that kind of stuff at a higher level than you know our energy well going you know this all comes back to education and just as we were talking about the financial literacy and whatnot i think we we as a society need to if we're going to accept that we live in this brave new digital world and it's going to be around to stay we have to really focus on on internet education and cyber education. And what scares me is how few people just have the basic financial literacy. And True. yet we have this whole new paradigm that we live in today. And it's even more difficult for people to wrap their heads around, um, you know, why this stuff matters and why they need to get educated. There's a, uh, God, who was it? Uh, one of the comedians that has like a daily daily show that the british guy um heck was it they were he was walking around anyway the the gist of it is this he was walking around the streets of new york asking people who they if they knew who edward snowden was and most people Mm -hmm. had no clue who he was they just knew that he was a really bad guy um and they would ask you know is it okay should it be okay for um the government to view um you know, content that's online and people would be like, yep, that's totally fine. And they, then he would ask, so are you aware that the government, uh, if they wanted to, would be have the ability to see your dick pics and, and you know, naked photos of you that you may have taken with your photo, with your, with your phone? And they, people would stop in their tracks and say, wait a second, what? They have the ability to see what? And that was, it was bringing the conversation to a level of dick pics that got mm-hmm. the average Joe on the street to stop and take the conversation seriously and really Mm -hmm. start to understand that everything that they're putting online can be and will be likely visible to someone somewhere, whether it's the government or not, doesn't matter. But getting people Mm -hmm. to simply have an education and understanding that you can't just throw stuff out into the, you know, onto your phone. You can't just text anything to anyone at any time and think that it's just going to disappear um, even Snapchat, right? This this concept of mm-hmm. things disappearing into the ether. There's ways around that. People can, you know, take save the picture. You know, you can take a screenshot of a picture um, on your phone. So it may disappear mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the hard drive of Snapchat, but mm-hmm. it can be stored on someone's phone who's connected to you. Um, mm-hmm. And that type of, you know, I have a hard time explaining this stuff to my 12 year old. Um, let alone, you know, the 20 some odd year olds who are in corporate America today who are just clueless as to how this stuff uh, can uh-huh. and will affect them on a day to day basis. 
You know, earlier you asked me about the timeline for this stuff, and and the first like vision idea picture I had in my head was of this um book that came out in the '90s called Crossing the Chasm, and it's like the whole idea is that like in the bell curve, before you get the hockey stick, you you get between early adopters and the early mainstream, you have this chasm. So if you want your product to be successful, it has to cross the chasm. Right? It was great uh, business marketing book at the time. Um, I feel like, you know, we're in these growing pains. You know, this, we're, we're so baby early with the information age. Um, and it's going to be a long age. It's a long time. And um, we are just starting to understand some of the problems, the unintended consequences of the technology that we've built. Technology that we built with certain intentions in mind, but lacking consciousness around other things. Um, we're having these growing pains right now because it's actually a great opportunity for us to look at the problems that we've created and come up with more solutions and try to be more conscious about what we're creating in the future. And, and ultimately, that's what I try to do as a futurist. I help people look at the future. I tell people what the future could be because I ultimately want people to make the best decisions in the present. It's not about knowing the future for a prediction because all of our actions that we have, that we take, they create a future. We all have power. The future is not created by some other person. We are all creating it every moment, every time. And so if you know the future you want to create, you can be more conscious about the decision that you make in the moment. And that decision is, can be a personal decision. It can be professional. It can be business. It can be which, which, you know, which, which product line are you going to invest money into? It's like, you know, do you, do you want something that's going to empower people for like this? Or do you want, you know, to make money at all costs or something? And so, you know, that's ultimately why I wanted to and why I continue to do this work. Um, it's not about predicting the future or knowing what the future is to take advantage of it. It's about knowing what the future could be so that, and sharing what that future is so that people can make better decisions in the present. I don't actually want any of the futures that I, that I see as possible. Like, I don't even, I wouldn't stake my ground and say, I want that one to happen or that one to happen or that one to happen. Because the future is going to unfold in all different ways. It's going to be parts of all of those futures mixed together in different percentages. I want people to be conscious about which ones they want to put their time, energy, resources towards. It's interesting. As you're talking, um, the language that you use is almost verbatim the language that I use and, and my firm, Open Spectrum, uses when we're talking to clients. Because when we go in and look at a company, what we're really trying to do is get them to understand what all the different possibilities are for their company to to mm-hmm. run efficiently and effectively and really asking them what is the future that they want to see occur and then what mm-hmm. ways can we go about putting process procedure uh you know new contracts in place such that they can achieve that um mm-hmm. so it's almost you know uh, on a corporate by corporate level uh looking at the physical infrastructure that supports and runs runs their business but that, I just found that interesting as you were talking cool. we should do some we should like do some future security stuff. 
done. I think we just started. <laughs> I think we, we, <laughs> we already put that flag in the ground in this conversation today. I, I think so. I think this is the, the first documented conversation with it. Well, Heather, I think uh, I want to be respectful of your time. And I think we've got a, a great bit of piece of content here for, for people to dig into and digest. And I want to uh, ask you before I leave you a couple a couple quick questions, uh, kind of yeah. akin to uh, Tim Ferriss's rapid fire on his podcast. Okay. But when was the first time you recall ever stepping into a data center? Gosh, I don't know. I don't have the date on that. Like, well, I mean, when I say, when you say data center, I think like some co-located place, but um, if I'm really honest about, you know, when servers together, I would say the server room, uh, one of the first startups I was at in San Francisco. So like, probably like 97 or 98. No, wait, sorry. I'll go back to college. Definitely was in some server rooms in college. Um, that would what be in the early 90s. What college was that? University of Northern Iowa. <laughs> and they yeah, just happened so to have... Actually, what brought you into the server room at the University of Northern Iowa? Oh, probably just, you know... I don't know. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Galaxy far, far away. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know nerdy interested in servers what was your what was your major back then oh uh english language and literature i also did um radio <laughs> i i always did like weird like um weird weird stuff i would hang out i would always hang out in the computer lab and i i was very very big in the hanging out on pbs's and uh I, I was not a computer science nerd. I should have been. I really should have been. That's a that's a miss, that's a missed career for me because I could basic programming when I was like thirteen, but never finished. Never thought of that. Gotcha. That was a long time ago. I hadn't even thought about that. Okay, so that wasn't a very fast answer. Sorry. It's all right. What what is the current backdrop on your your laptop or your your phone? Oh right. Okay, so. It used to be a fire volcano, but I felt like that was too energetic. So it's just a picture of the moon and the edge of the earth. It's kind of boring. It's it's one of the normal ones when I'm back. Gotcha. What is a common misconception or perception that you... um, you think people have about maybe either what it is that you do or just the the industry at large predictions, which I touched on people, people believing in predictions and thinking, thinking that predictions are actually valuable. Gotcha. Um, What is something that you believe to be true that you think most people think are insane? You're insane for believing. I don't know. Probably a lot of things. Um, this would be a fun one to ask you because I'm sure you have a couple. Uh, oh, um, me personally, I believe. Yes. Um, uh, 
I don't, it's, it's a little, I'm going to answer it a little bit differently. I get very frustrated with people who want to live forever and want to live to be like 150 plus. I, I want to die. I'm, I believe in dying. That, that, and I believe that dying is a good thing. Or death and dying is a good thing. Gotcha. There's so many questions I have related to that, but that's a topic for another. <laughs> right? You yeah. asked the question. <laughs> um, how about this? What is the most fascinating thing that you've learned in the past few months? So I've been doing the cybersecurity research, the future of cybersecurity project with my colleague, Bob Blakely. We wrote this paper for the security paradigm workshop. Um, just everything I've been learning about that space. Um, uh, the, the academic paper, which will be available later this year. And if you want teasers of it, just sign up for my your cybersecurity email. Um, in that paper, we came up with 13 different future scenarios and 13 new paradigms. And it was by and far beyond my wildest dreams, like what we came up with. All super legitimate based in the research. And, um, uh, and that's actually one of the things I love about the work I do is like, you know, sci-fi and writing sci-fi before like, you know, make shit up. Um, I don't have to make it up. Like what my work comes up with is crazier than anything I've ever seen in Hollywood or read in the sci-fi book. Like what I do. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's, it's a good, good content. Um, good response. What do you wish you would have known when you started out in the industry or what piece of advice could you, or would you give yourself? Mm. That everyone is just as insecure as everyone else. Even the people that you think that have it together um, and look like they know what they're doing, well, they do. But, you know, we all have the same challenges. Nobody has these. Right. Yeah, everyone's waking up and having to fight some sort of battle every day. Yep. Totally unrelated, but related is uh, my wife and I are going to be on 13 years of marriage in September. Oh, my and God. Congratulations. Thank you. For the, we were just recently had this kind of shake us a few times over the last couple of months and years. But the, the couples that we've known, been married for a long time, where you think they just got everything together when you really dig under the covers, which my wife and I tend to do in our conversations because we're very direct and we try to get to know people behind the bullshit, um, which is sort of the whole purpose of this podcast. But um, we're just finding that everybody, everybody's got issues. Everybody's got drama. Everybody's got problems. Those who put out a front of everything just being perfect and hunky dory tend to be the ones that have the biggest problems underneath. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Just kind of seeing that play out, not just in, the personal world, but also in, uh, in the corporate world where, you know, the the more money someone spends on marketing, the more it tells me, what are they trying to hide (laughs) on the back end? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I mean, I try to take a, a compassionate approach to that and, um, you know, we're all doing the best that we can, um, with what we've got and, and that includes our energy resources as well. Um, 
And um, and actually, that's some of the things I've really found living in the middle of nowhere is I've had renewed energy, creative energy, because, um, you know, I'm just able to focus on a lot of different things um, that otherwise I would, you know, not able to think at that level because I'd be dealing with whatever, neighbors or stress or whatever. And um, I, I've also been trying to do this practice in the last couple of years, um, my calm and drama-free lifestyle. And um, so I try to think about what activities and behaviors I could do to the drama and increase the calmness both in myself, the people I'm working with, and the world. And that includes, like, you know, when you go on Facebook or you go on Twitter, like, are you responding from in a troll in your troll brain or are you like trying to reduce that negative energy that's being circulated in our emotional system try to just help we just gotta all help each other like like herd emotional immunity did they get herd emotional immunity yeah i just said herd emotional immunity i've never said that before i gotta like it though you should trademark that ASAP. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last question I have for you is, do you love data centers? Um, gosh, I mean, they're exciting. Do I love data centers? I mean, I love talking with you. Um, they're generally air-conditioned. So I love that. Um, yeah, I, I think I do. I think I do love data centers. Well, you love me. So by proxy, you love data centers because I love data And centers. I do love data centers that have colorful Ethernet cables. There you go. That are organized. But I also can, I can also really um, appreciate the chaos as well. So. Well, you, you were telling me before we started the podcast that you have a treasure trove of pictures of data centers cabling okay well i don't i don't actually have a collection but sometimes i get like a little get a little obsessed about weird little things like nobody nobody gets obsessed about weird little things on the internet um and i'll just go and i'll look at the the extremes right extreme messy cables and then extreme organized cables i I think i remember seeing like some like rainbow cable things and i was like so impressed i was like whoever set this up like they're attention to detail or their OCD or whatever, I was like, mm, love it, you know? Yeah. Right, yeah. I like, I do love data centers. I love, I, I love, yeah, I love data. There we go. That's what I needed. I needed that sound, sound bite. I love it took data a while, centers. It took a while to get it from you, <laughs> but I eventually got it. Oh, I'm sorry. Sometimes I get distracted. I'm not a focused podcaster. Because you're always living in the future. In the present, both simultaneously. At the same time. Well, Heather, thank you again. I appreciate your time, and I will uh, be talking with you very soon as we embark on our future of future of data centers projects. Sounds great, Sean. It is really a pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you, Heather. And I will be leaving all the show notes or all the the details in the show notes about your book and all the other ways that you can contact with. Heather, actually speaking of which, for those who are listening and someone who wants to get a hold of you, what's a quick, easy way for someone to, to reach you? So um, best way to reach me is probably on Twitter. I'm Heather Vescent. Um, you can also uh, check out my website, heathervescent.com. 
if you want to sign up for my list about um, updates on my uh, future cybersecurity research, I will uh, send Sean, uh, there'll be a link in the liner notes of this podcast. And for those who are listening, Heather Vescent is spelled H-E-A-T-H-E-R-B-E-S-C-E-N-T. Uh, that's heathervescent.com and her Twitter handle, Heather Vescent. Thank you for listening. And thank you again, Heather. And uh, have yourself a beautiful evening. You too. Thanks, Sean. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.